welcome, Neil. This is hell. Live from late capitalism, where we know the price of everything but the value of nothing, this is hell. Today is the last day of summer, with fall beginning on Thursday, September 22nd. A year ago, the Delta variant of COVID was detected, and the CDC recommended boosters to combat the new version of the virus. Only a couple short months later, right around Thanksgiving, also recognized as a national day of mourning, a new Omicron variant was discovered. And 10 months later, we are now, only now, finally getting a booster designed to stop the latest version of the virus. As epidemiologist Rob Wallace explained on our show back during those first two years of the COVID-19 pandemic, the virus is zoonotic in nature, Intended. That is, it is transferred from animals to people. And again, as Rob pointed out, it has a lot to do with deforestation leading to human contact with animals that carry diseases to which we have no natural immunity. All around the world, epidemiologists like Rob, as well as virologists, are constantly looking for the next flu, the next influenza that might be as deadly as the so called Spanish flu of 1918 that killed tens of millions globally. This so this year uh, so far, we seem to have dodged any new variant bullet of COVID, leading some to say the pandemic is over, and then immediately stepping back from that claim. With AIDS still claiming a million lives a year, it's as if these epidemics never really end. Then there are new possible public health threats like the massive chicken flu epidemic that struck chicken farms across the United States in the late spring and into the summer. You may not have heard about it as it did not get much national news coverage, and why should you be concerned? After all, it was deadly to chickens, not humans. But that's the problem here in the U.S. and in the U.K. There have been human victims who lost their lives this summer's avian flu. It all goes back to an avian flu outbreak in 1997 in Hong Kong when the virus jumped from birds to humans for the first time, leading Hong Kong to slaughter all their birds. Ever since, that virus has been jumping around, going from bird to bird, species to species, and evolving into Lord knows what. But what all this comes down to is chickens and how they are becoming the world's leading protein source for human consumption, and how... Industrial agriculture farms not only are the perfect venue for diseases to occur, but also the perfect system for distributing that virus to the human population. In other words, if we want to protect ourselves from another pandemic, we may want to reconsider the way we get our food. In a few minutes, we will be speaking with award-winning freelance writer Boyce Upholt, who wrote the New Republic article, Will the Next Pandemic Start with Chickens? This spring, a virulent strain of bird flu ripped through the through U.S. farms. The public hardly noticed that we could ignore the disease shows just how little we've learned about the origin of new viruses. Boyce won the 2019 Award for Investigative Journalism from the James Beard Foundation. His writing is focused on the way we use and imagine the non-human world. He covers, among other subjects, Public lands, exploration, biodiversity, foodways, infrastructure, and the cultural history of quote-unquote wilderness. His work has appeared in the Atlantic, National Geographic, the Oxford American, and many other publications, and has been noted in the Best American Science and Nature series. Boyce is currently working on a book 
about the Mississippi River, a history of what's been done to it, and travelogue showing the results. Follow Boyce on Twitter at Boyce Upholt. That's B-O-Y-C-E Upholt. Find out more about Boyce at BoyceUpholt.com. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show, podcast, live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. Producing is Dan Hill. Dan, how have you been? I saw you at the party this past weekend. It looked like you were enjoying the music downstairs. Boy, that was a lot of fun, huh? Yeah, it was a lot of fun. Uh, I, how long were you here? Because I was floating around like the social butterfly I have to be during hosting yeah. party times. I left halfway through the second musical act. I was having a good time, though. I flipped a few comic books. Did you? To some gentle souls. Oh, that's awesome. Mark, Mike, and Chris. Few few coins jangling around in my pocket feels good. So people can find uh, Fifty Flip Experiment, your uh, comic book at fiftyflipexperiment.com. That's awesome that you sold some copies of your book. Yeah, it's fun. I'm looking at beachfront properties. Are you <laughs> really? Is that because of climate change, or is that because no, you're all making this a lot money? Of- Let's oh, go. Really? Yeah, I thought for sure. Bracket. I thought it was just going to be rising sea levels was causing that. Thanks to everyone again for coming out to the party. I had a fantastic time, and we can't wait to do it again next year. We hope you will also be able to join us for our annual holiday office party happening in December. We'll be sharing details on that in the next few weeks. Dan, please remind us, what is this week's question from hell for our listening audience? This week's question from hell is, what important personal item did you lose at the This Is Hell annual listener appreciation party that we had this weekend? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins, as always, your choice of whatever This Is Hell swag you want. The This Is Hell t-shirt, tote bag, the face covering and the face mask, the coffee mug, the trucker's cap, the winter beanie or toque if you prefer, as well as the This Is Hell guide to the 21st century flash drive featuring dozens of interviews from the 2000s. You can check out all of our merchandise right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support where you will see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell. Remember, without you, we got nothing. So thanks to all of you for your support and all of our merchandise, except for the winter cap. We have to order some of those. All of our merchandise is now available here at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue, during our weekly meet and greet known as This Is Hell Office Hours, which is really big drink and think. Happens every Wednesday night again at Carrie's Lounge beginning at 6 p.m. and going till about 10 p.m. So if you want to check out our merchandise, you can also do that during office hours. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio, or you can direct message it to us via Twitter at thisishellradio, or you can email it to thisishell at thisishellradio at gmail.com. But we must have your answer by the end of today's show when we are announcing this week's winner. And throughout this week's show, I've been saying would be we would be announcing the winner as we usually do, following Jeff Dorchin in the moment of truth. And then I find out Jeff is not available for a moment of truth this week, so my apologies to everyone, including Jeff, for not reading the email he sent me several days ago saying he could not do the show this week. Dan, do you know why he can't do the show this week? Because I could not find that email for the life of me. I think he said he was in transit, possibly, for a wedding. Oh, really? Yeah, All I right. can't remember. That's good. But he was moving. He was traveling He's somewhere. He's traveling yeah. somewhere. That's good enough. And now a word from our sponsor, and as we are completely listener-supported, our sponsor is you. And the first message is from a past contributor here on This Is Hell, Pete Misick, who was reporting for us in the early 2010s on the uh, tech industry and freedom of speech. Pete writes, hi, Chuck. It's been a while. Hope you are well. I enjoyed doing the couple of interviews with you on the show. Why did you drop me? Give me another shot, please. 
I track what shenanigans the tech sector is up to, and I work at the United Nations a lot. I now have Harvard credentials, too. Not sure if that helps or hurts in hell. I'm not too sure either. Anyways, I hope you're well, man. Cheers, Pete. Thanks, Pete, and hope all is well with you, too. And apparently, everything is going well for Pete, as at Harvard's website, it says this about him. Pete Misick is general counsel and UN advocacy manager at Access Now and lecturer at the Columbia University School of International and Public Affairs. He, his work advances human rights and civic space in the digital age through legal interventions, multilateral engagement, and public advocacy. So uh, Access Now, apparently, it defends and extends the digital rights of users at risk globally. Pete is also an adjunct professor at Columbia University School of International and Public Affairs. And... He plays guitar for New York City's most ironic party band, The Ironic Hipsters, which has been covering music from the 2000s since 2021. You can find Pete on Twitter at Lawyers Pants. Lawyers Pants. So we'll be contacting Pete to find out what he's up to, and who knows, maybe you will be hearing a report from Pete on the tech sector or the ironic hipsters or freedom of speech or who the hell knows if there is uh, some past contributor you've been wondering about and would like to know what they are up to want to leave and want to have them back on the show just tell us who and we'll see what we can find out we can see we'll see what we can do about having them return to the show we also got an email from bob y who writes hey chuck and comrades betty Sachs coburg gotha fest 2022 is a real drag, and I wanted to share a coping mechanism I've developed for myself, as it might benefit others. Mentally insert a This Is Hell subvertising sticker on each UK dictator morning point encountered in person or on the media. Hope this helps. Bob. So our subvertising sticker is a cartoon bubble that says This Is Hell, which can be placed on any advertisement, and we've got pictures of them from all over the world on our Instagram page. My guess is Bob's reference to Betty Sachs Coburg Gotha is a reference to the late Queen Elizabeth, uh, Betty, as her first name was Elizabeth, and Sachs Coburg Gotha, as that is the royal house of her family. Bob, I have an even better coping mechanism for all the pomp and circumstance of a monarch's funeral that blanketed U.S. corporate media news coverage for the last couple of weeks, and that is don't watch. I know this advice is a day too late as the ceremonies, I think, ended yesterday. But next time a monarch dies and the U.S. establishment media makes a big deal out of it, cope by not watching and ignoring the whole pointless affair. Instead, if you simply must read about a dead British queen, check out Irish Twitter, which is a lot less forgiving of the empire than any U.S. network is. Again, if you want to send us constructive or destructive criticism, guest or topic suggestions, or apparently if you are a past correspondent who wants back on the show or someone who has a coping mechanism for dealing with wall-to-wall coverage of the death of a monarch, email us at chuck at thisishell.com. And if we have your guest or topic suggestion on the show, we will thank you personally on air during that related conversation. Live from the nightmare of want, this is hell. President Biden said this week that the pandemic is over and immediately stepped back from that claim 
as he should because people are still dying from the COVID-19 virus. But with vaccines becoming increasingly accessible, with more people getting the boosters, with safety protocols becoming more lax, it makes sense that any of us might be thinking that if not over, the pandemic is at the very least waning. However, there was another epidemic this spring and summer that should give us all pause when it comes to concerns over public health. The problem is nobody was really paying attention to it as it was killing chickens, not humans. That is, until humans contracted the virus in the U.S. and U.K. and died. Here to help us better understand the latest epidemic, we are very happy to have on the show, award-winning freelance writer Boyce Upholt, who wrote the New Republic article, Will the Next Pandemic Start with Chickens? Welcome to This Is Hell, Boyce. Thanks, Chuck. I'm uh, excited to be here. It's great to have you on the show. And if I overly cite your article throughout this conversation, because I have like 70 questions for you, <laughs> please stop me from quoting it. But it's really great writing. I was very. This is just fascinating. You write that in, in the right conditions, you cannot mistake the fact that you're near an industrial chicken farm. There's a walloping odor of mold and feces, even death, as if you've come upon a raccoon corpse rotting in a creek. Or that's how Greg Lank describes it. Lank grows corn and soybeans on a plot of land in Butler County, Nebraska, a half mile north of a massive industrial chicken farm. Within three miles lie two other chicken facilities built over the last few years, putting Lank's home in the middle of a collective metropolis of more than two million chickens. You then quote Lank telling you when you visited him this summer, you constantly wonder, do I smell like my clothes, my house? If I go somewhere, do I smell like dead chickens? You add how you felt lucky that the summertime heat helped dampen the stench. Had I been there in March, Lank said, it would have been overwhelming. Did Lank or any other residents who you talked to and live in the area, did they ever give you the sense that they felt this massive industrial chicken operation made them vulnerable to animal-borne diseases, that they were actually aware of the operation's potential threat to the public health of their community? Did they relate to you that they felt like they were in danger from the facilities? Oh, yeah, definitely. So Greg Greg Lance is how his name is said, but um, he told me, this didn't make the piece, but he told me, you know, he, he was quite sick, I think, in April um, when the birds in Butler County, where he lives, were uh, testing positive for this virus. And uh, he, I mean, looking, I think at the time, he was just like, this is what it's like to live near a chicken farm. He's kind of always sniffling, always a little under the weather because he's surrounded by feathers and dust and all kinds of other chicken detritus. Um, but he's sort of looking back, he's like, I don't know, maybe, maybe I, I did have this too. Um, and so, yeah, it was definitely a thing that, that worried the people that lived amid amidst this giant industry that's really popped up quickly in the area over the past couple of years. So how much of a say does the community have when these facilities open up? Do, do, do they support these facilities opening up because they see these as a positive economic impact on their community? They see these as a place for getting jobs? Uh, how much of a say, how, much, how democratic is the process of these facilities opening in places like Butler County? You know, I didn't, I mean, I can't speak to the specific process there. It was something sort of, I, I gave myself a, a cursory introduction to, I mean, clearly Greg, um, Sam Barlene, another local man I met were very opposed to this and, and fought it uh, tooth and nail as, as, as it started to come in. The county they live in, Butler County, has no zoning restrictions, which is part of the issue that they faced. So there just wasn't, um, there wasn't a lot of ways that they could go about stopping it. Um, so... 
Yeah, no zoning restrictions, which means that landlords from far off can just uh, lease out this land to people and then not have and not feel the actual impact of it because they're not people who they're, they're, the landlords aren't uh, uh, residents or uh, members of the community. They do this from afar. How much do you think that that is what is the driving reason for these chicken facilities to be popping up all over, that the people who own the land are not going to feel the impact from those facilities? It's definitely part of it. I mean, Butler County is interesting. I, I mean, in this piece, I, I focused on Gallus Capital, this North Carolina-based firm that um, has opened a number of the farms there. I should say there are some farms that are owned locally. And, and what Greg and Sam told me was they tended to um, find that those farms were, yeah, they weren't ideal. They didn't necessarily still, Greg didn't necessarily want them uh, so close to where he lived, but he found that at least the people who had to live in this county and run these farms. We're, we're doing a little bit better job keeping things clean. So it's a mixture. Um, but yeah, the sense I got from from Greg and others that I spoke to about this is the reason why this popped up in Butler County is Costco kind of moved into the chicken industry trying to lessen the price of chicken by producing it themselves. And they were really trying to uh, convince a lot of locals to to go after this. This could be a great opportunity for people. Um, and apparently they couldn't convince enough people. And so they had to bring in some outside investors as well. You write that Lance had been worried given that a virulent strain of avian influenza was surging through the uh, country's poultry farms. Indeed, late in the month, the Nebraska Department of Agriculture confirmed that the epidemic had reached Butler County. The agency did not announce which farms were infected, but it was not hard for Lance to ascertain. I'm going to just stop there for a moment. The agency did not announce which farms were infected. How much is the public aware? How much public information is there about these different facilities when it comes to infection? Because you also quote somebody from Gallus Capital later on saying that uh, she's very concerned about the safety conditions at these farms. So to what extent, but she would not release, she wouldn't decline, or she declined to comment whether these infections were coming from uh, chicken farms that uh, her Gallus Capital was running. So uh, to what extent do we have access to information on what's happening on these uh, industrial agricultural, agriculture chicken farms? Yeah, I mean, so it's standard practice to not announce the specific name or location of these farms. I mean, so it it is identified on the county level by state and federal agencies. And in a lot of cases, you can, I mean, you can do what Greg did, is if you live there, you can drive around and you can, it's very obvious where's which farm has been hit because all of a sudden there are a whole lot of people in hazmat suits um, doing the, like going through the process of killing chickens. Um, but otherwise, you sort of have to triangulate and coordinate to figure out what's going on. I mean, and, and Greg and Sam, said no one told them, right? They they just happened to see on Facebook an announcement from the Nebraska Department of Agriculture that helped them know that they lived within this zone. Um, and I think Sam may have called the Nebraska Department of Agriculture and said, like, why didn't anyone tell me? Uh, and was told, like, oh, you just can't catch this flu. So we're not we're not worried about that. Um, but the, I mean, and this is true of agriculture more broadly. There are this is not the case in Nebraska, but in, in Iowa next door, which was hit even harder by avian flu. I believe there's ag gag laws, which basically say it's it's illegal to try and document what's going on on a farm. Um, so there's been a yeah a real industry effort to sort of make sure that people know as little as possible about what's going on in these farms in part i think because if people saw these farms we'd be less inclined to want to eat what comes off of them are these the egg gag laws that came into effect shortly after 9/11 in an attempt to 
protect uh, farms from potential terrorist attacks. Are those the same egg gag lies? Potentially. I don't know the history. I do know that they've been sort of expanding in recent years, I think, in part to um, expanded efforts to kind of fight against uh, CAFOs, confined animal feeding operations, and to push back. Activists are pushing back more and more against this kind of industry because of these kinds of effects. So what can we do to, I mean, is there any way that we can overcome these ag-gag laws? Because this is, you know, I mean, I know that they are, this is a trade practice because they're upset with people who are activists who are against CAFOs. But isn't there some way that we can overcome these ag-gag laws? And do we need to overcome them in order for us to be able to control possible virus outbreaks from agricultural industrial chicken farms? Yeah, I mean, I, I hope that the democratic process could do it. Um, I mean, I, I think that what I would target is less the ag-gag laws and more just say these kinds of CAFOs, maybe we should just make them illegal. It's something that um, has come up uh, in discussion in the Senate before. I think even the National Review, kind of when, when a, a democratic senator was pushing a, a law to make factory farming illegal, the, the National Review, a very conservative publication, was like, this is worth a look. Um, so there is, yeah, it, it's it's hard to imagine because it is such a massive industry. It would be a massive change to how how we eat food, but it, it I don't know, the animal, from the animal welfare position to things like viral pandemics, uh, I'm not convinced that the system we have now is um, a system that's serving us well. And then the the impact on the uh, workers themselves at these farms, and we'll get to that in a little bit. You write, for yeah. most Americans, that this devastation has amounted to a little more of this chicken epidemic, little more than a blip on the evening news. The price of eggs gone up. Nearly three years into our own still raging pandemic, perhaps it's hard to care about chickens, even when they're dying by the tens of millions. But that very fact that it's easy for us to ignore trouble in the ecology that surrounds and supports us also shows what little we've learned about how pandemics begin. Why have we learned so little about how pandemics begin? Is it because of political leaders not uh, making it clear to us how this pandemic began? Is it because of the media? Or is it that we just turn a blind eye to the way, like when it comes to the role of agricultural chicken farming, do we just turn a blind eye to the way that we get our food? Yeah, I think it's probably a little bit of all of those things. Um, I think it's comforting and easy to look at what has happened over the past couple of years and think, you know, well, this is scary and I don't like that I've had to change my life in order to avoid a disease, but I'm not responsible. And, you know, you, uh, Trump is the worst example of this talking about the Wuhan flu, but we have a, a tendency here in the United States to sort of try wherever possible to pin these diseases on distant geographies. Um, and I, I see that from people across the political spectrum, really, it's just um, it's disconcerting to to take a look at some of our creature comforts like cheap food and to think, oh, that you know, like this is this is not just part of the problem, but in, in many ways a key driver of this problem. So uh, you also mentioned how this uh, broke out in Wuhan in a live market, and that the World Health Organization has called on countries to halt any trade of live or minimally processed wild mammals or bush meat, as it's sometimes called. Do we know how far a global ban on the trade of live or minimally processed wild mammals would go in protecting the world from animal-borne viruses that lead to pandemics? If we simply control the bush meat market, how far does that go to protect us against a future pandemic? Not very far. And that was one of the, that's one of the first things I I noticed when I began researching this. I mean, I spoke to a Um, public health and sort of 
global biology expert, Colin Carlson from Georgetown University. Um, and he had been, I mean, there have been some, some scientists coming out saying, you know, if we spend $20 billion, we can really target bushmeat in Africa and make a difference. And he looks at that and says, well, that's, that's absurd. There's, uh, you know, there are so many different drivers to pandemics, but uh, bushmeat, uh, wild, the, the consumption of, of wild meat is pretty small compared to things like land use changes, things like agriculture. And so to spend $20 billion to kind of, and think we've solved the problem is we were just distracted by COVID instead of thinking more broadly by, you know, this, this disease has been a little bit of an outlier compared to historic um, pandemics, but, you know, I'm 38 in my lifetime. I've never really had to pay attention to a pandemic before this. And so, yeah, of course it makes sense that we are distracted by this sudden life-changing occurrence. I just, yeah, I would hope that we can start thinking more broadly than that now. Right. But as you point out, the global wildlife trade is responsible for a tiny fraction of disease outbreaks, which was pointed out to you again by Colin Carlson, a biologist at Georgetown University who studies infectious diseases and global change. You write, as for pandemics, the rare but consequential diseases that manage to spread across international borders Carlson said, it's this one. It's just this one. How unprecedented is this current pandemic, the COVID-19 pandemic, for its origin being from wild animals? I mean, as Carlson, it's hard to, you know, I think potentially some other public health experts would dispute that because what constitutes a pandemic depends on definitions, as all things do. Um, and, and so obviously there are other scary things. Ebola, I mentioned in the piece, came from um, bushmeat production. I'm not sure about monkeypox, but it may well have. So there are other things that have caught our attention. Um, but, you know, again, part of the reason why I wrote about flu and why I think we should be thinking about flu is flu is is much scarier than something like Ebola, even though it doesn't necessarily seem as scary. It seems like something we all know of, maybe something we've all caught before. Um, but Ebola is sort of pretty easy to see when someone has. So it's not something that's going to be transmissible as quickly and as rapidly as as COVID is, whereas influenza, uh, it, it, it spreads quickly and rapidly, often by people that seem asymptomatic. And so that's sort of what, uh, besides, that's why COVID is this rare pandemic that came from uh, a bushmeat zoonotic source is because it was a rare virus that spreads that way that came from that source. And you write that bushmeat is an easy target, at least for Americans, since it seems distant and dirty, the kind of commodity that a real civilization would have already left behind. Is Do you think that's why it's being targeted? Because it does not, uh, bushmeat prohibition does not affect Americans or people who live in other wealthy nations. Is that why it's being targeted? Potentially, yeah. I mean, I, and I, I think some of the people targeting it are, you know, doing so in good faith. But um, again, it's just psychologically easy and useful sometimes to to look afar instead of looking at home. So, what is uh, more of a threat when it comes to uh, breeding diseases and when it comes to distributing diseases? Are domesticated animals any more of a threat to human health than wild animals? Because we've been repeatedly told about the threat from wild animals when it comes to COVID-19. What is misunderstood when we understand wild animals as the main source of viruses? Yeah, I mean, to me, so I call myself a nature critic sometimes because I'm a critic of, I love what we call nature, but I'm a critic of that idea. And I think but that's the root of why we're looking at wild animals is we like to, to think of the world in these sort of dualities of here and there and us versus them, us, be, you know, and, and our chickens, our pigs, our cows are, are kind of part of us. They're domesticated creatures and they're familiar and they live alongside us. And so 
yeah, it's easy to, to imagine, oh, it's just the wild creatures that are doing this. But as I point out in the piece, you know, the the sheer biomass of domesticated chick, chickens and pigs is enormous, right? And so viruses are, we, we are always surrounded by viruses and every sort of other organism we interact with could be carrying viruses. You can, you know, this is why during the pandemic, we learned that even our loved ones, our neighbors could be a danger to us. Um, and so, it, yeah, it's a mistake to think that just wild animals can carry this. Uh, one ex extreme example of this is, is the worst pandemic in sort of modern history it was back in 1918. It was a flu that, uh, as far as we can tell, seemed to have emerged from a chicken farm in Kansas. And so something far worse than COVID has occurred, and it did not come from a distant shores. It did not come from wild creatures. It came from chickens right here. So why do you think during the pandemic, and they kept referring to it as Spanish flu over and over again, why wasn't, I mean, very rarely did I ever hear uh, that, that, uh, that Spanish flu originated at Leavenworth in Kansas. That was just not something that came up in the news. Why do you think here in the United States, corporate establishment, media, news media, whatever you want to call it, does, did not want to fix that uh, inaccurate packaging of the Spanish flu as being from Spain instead of actually being from the United States in Kansas. Yeah, I mean, it's sort of once a name gets stuck, it's kind of easy not to look past it. Honestly, you know, like I've worked for newspapers before. Um, again, I, I don't, I don't think everyone that was repeating that that name was doing so willfully. But sometimes you are scrambling to write a piece, and you're going to note Spanish flu, and you're not necessarily going to to dig past the established story. And and also the Spanish flu name, how it got that name, is just that. Um, this was happening during World War One, um, and the Spanish press was uh, sort of, I believe that they were, uh, I should know my history better, but I think they were sort of impartial in this war. They had less restrictions on the press because of wartime. And so it was the place where people actually knew about it rather than the place that it was coming from, because everywhere else was just so obsessed with covering the war. There wasn't as much coverage of this massive wave of, wave of death that, that rolled across the US and Europe. So... Do you think it would do any good if the media started reporting on the Spanish flu here in the United States as the Kansas flu? Uh, I, potentially, yeah. I mean, I think, again, I, I think we need to reckon with, with the fact of, of what's happening in our backyard and reckon with the fact that, um, I mean, I, we'll get to this, I think, but I think even these zoonotic diseases that are emerging across distant oceans are often in some ways can be attributed to what we've done here is we, we've been an economic driver to that has forced changes that have overturned ecosystems and sort of unleashed a Pandora's box of viral epidemics. And so I think if we start looking and saying, oh yeah, multiple national global pandemics have started here in the US or just south of Mexico, um, we might start target making better policies to prevent future diseases. But you also point out it's kind of misleading to label any of these viruses as coming from a particular nation because viruses don't know borders. They don't know the difference between right. one one and another. So how, what, what are we misled into believing when we do have these geographical attachments to these viruses? Yeah, again, it just to me, it reinforces this us versus them mentality of it. It helps us feel safe and comfortable as Americans, as if, you know, like what we're doing must be right and normal and natural. Um, yeah, it just allows us to distract ourselves from uh, pursuing needed solutions. So is the goal of the CDC then, uh, even more so than protecting public health, uh, stopping, uh, you know, uh, doing something to prevent uh, public panic? At times, it looks like that. Um, I mean, I, I note in the piece, so so the last 
before this year, there was one an earlier major break, outbreak of uh, bird flu on U.S. chicken farm, farms back in 2014 and 2015. And um, they're sort of depending on what federal agency was talking about the disease, they would talk about where it came from in different ways. And um, so public health officials kind of really pushed the fact that, oh, this is, uh, you know, Asian flu has never been found in the United States. Um, and you know, it's only North American flu lines, bird flu lines don't affect human beings in the same way, and sort of just overlooked the fact that uh, the virus that was spreading at that time had this mixture of genetics. It was half North American genetics and half Asian genetics, and that's how viruses work sometimes. They can sort of swap half of their genes at a time and become these strange creations. You write that we know more definitively that the two following influenza pandemics after 1918, the ones in 1957 and 1968, which each killed at least a million people, resulted from avian human viral reassortment. The outbreak in Hong Kong was the result of reassortment, too. That was in 1997, though of a different kind. The virus that emerged there mixed up genes from various bird species, domestic and wild. Human-adapted viral genetics played no part. It was just dumb evolutionary luck that yielded a form of hemagglutin that could unlock the human cells, the equivalent of a million monkeys pounding on keyboards and yielding Shakespeare. So dumb evolutionary luck. Was it just a a strike of lightning, a rare event, and therefore we should not be too concerned about it happening again in the future? Or because it has happened, does that mean it is more likely to happen in the future and no longer be dumb evolutionary luck? But, and it's a phrase I I hate to use, but just a, a new normal. Yeah, I mean, I think it's the fact that it happened once less about whether or not it's that doesn't change how likely it is to happen again. It just should serve us as a reminder of how powerful viral genetics are. Right. So in some ways, that metaphor of monkeys pounding on keyboard, I mean, that's that's a classic metaphor, I think, of sort of these random processes where that fails is um just how quickly viruses evolve. I note in the piece that sort of, I don't remember the precise numbers, but I think it took 8 million years for the human genetic code to change 1%. There are some viruses that can do that within a matter of days, just because how quickly they reproduce and how many sort of errors are in their genes, but errors through evolution can become advantages. Um, And so 1997 in Hong Kong was just, should have been a reminder of the power of viral genetics um, and and that the fact that, again, we are, we are living amid this cloud of virus. It's always changing. It's always morphing. Um, and, you know, this year we saw some changes again. This this straight outbreak of, of uh, avian flu, you know, it hit chickens very hard, but it it's doing things that avian flus haven't done before in terms of hitting a huge range of mammalian species, bobcats, seals, even uh, dolphins that I learned after the piece, some dolphins have been hit. And so this is something new again. Uh, I say in the story, right? Like I I asked the question myself in the piece of like, should should we be worried? And I don't think Americans need to be worried right now that this bird flu, that we're going to catch it necessarily. But I think we always should have been worried about the fact that flu has this capability of becoming something deadly and globally devastating. And I'm not sure that we are making the changes to prepare ourselves for that. You mentioned the great fear in 1997 in Hong Kong was that this savage new virus would reassort once more and gain the superpower of easy human to human spread. Thankfully, that has not happened. Still, the past quarter century has been plenty eventful when it comes to avian influenza. More than 800 people have contracted the virus 
More than half of those have died. Other strains of bird flu have proved capable of jumping to humans, too, and humans have passed the disease among themselves, though never in high numbers. But the strain of influenza first identified after the Hong Kong outbreak is still out there, morphing and changing its genetic codes, spreading through more and more birds further across the globe. Should the fact that the number killed by the virus remaining low give us any kind of cold comfort and that maybe it's not that virulent or deadly? Or are these nearly 900 human beings dead from bird flu in the last 25 years? The canary in the coal mine, if you will, a harbinger of things to come. I think the numbers are quite scary when you look at, I mean, again, the COVID, I don't know offhand what the death rate is from COVID, but um, single digit death rate, right? And so only 800 people have contracted avian flu in 20 years. So that number is low, but more than half of those have died. So that shows that this is an incredibly deadly disease. And and the comfort, the cold comfort for now is the fact that, again, it, it, the transmission human to human has been so limited. And that's why that only 800 people have contracted it. But I, I don't I don't know. In, in doing research for this, I went back and read some scientific journal articles and medical journal articles from back in 1997. And they they were, you think of a journal article, an academic journal article as being dry and boring. And these were written kind of like previews of horror stories. The scientists were very alarmed. And there's not really a reason to not be alarmed now. Um, it's, yeah, again, I don't know about canary in the coal mine. It, it remains... A rand, the random luck of, of evolution, but at the same time, yeah, I think we are, are driving chances of this by um, as we rework the landscape of the earth and create more animal-to-animal -animal interactions that have never happened before. Um, that is just going to speed up uh, an already scary evolutionary process. We are speaking with award-winning investigative journalist Boyce Upholt, who wrote the New Republic article, Will the Next Pandemic Start with Chickens? You can follow Bro Boyce on Twitter at Boyce Upholt, and you can find out more about Boyce at his website, BoyceUpholt.com. That's B-O-Y-C-E. You write that in the in late 2014, waterfowl began dying en masse along the Pacific coast. The surveillance program revealed that highly pathogenic avian influenza, or HPAI, had arrived on our shores over the next few months. HPAI spread eastward, eventually ravaging Midwestern poultry farms. No human infections were documented, but the consequences were still devastating. Once a single chicken contracts this virus, you can expect the entire flock to die, though not before they suffer symptoms like internal hemorrhaging, swollen heads, and loss of coordination. Diarrhea and nasal discharge scatter new bits of virus across the farm. 50 million birds were killed in an effort to contain the outbreak. The U.S. government spent $879 million cleaning up the mess. How devastating can that be to a producer, the local economy? Have producers changed practices or communities become less dependent upon chicken farming in response to these viral outbreaks? Are, are either communities, uh, are, is either the, the community or the uh, private sector practicing safer practice in light of these this kind of devastation? Well, I will say, unfortunately, I'm not sure how devastating it is for producers because we have uh, very robust federal uh, programs that support farmers uh, in, in the, uh, in whenever things like this happen. So there's crop insurance that have, have helped chicken farmers weather this. I think it has been pretty devastating for communities. I mean, I didn't, 
I didn't speak about labor a ton in this piece, which is a shame because it's a huge issue in our modern agricultural system. But I do know that um, there's some good coverage in Iowa where 5 million birds were killed this spring because of an outbreak at an egg facility. Um, these are communities that you know a lot of immigrants have moved to, to to take these low-paying jobs in processing facilities. They had their own issues with COVID at a lot of meat packing facilities, and suddenly people found themselves laid off because there were no eggs to to produce. And in a small rural community, you know that can that can have a ripple effect very fast. And so, um, yeah, it's it's complicated in that way. But I be, I, I didn't research uh, the economic policy that deeply. It wasn't the focus of this piece, so I, I can't speak a ton about crop insurance. But my sense is. There isn't necessarily an incentive for our farmers to move away from this because uh, they are going to at least make up some money um, even when a disaster like this strikes. And as past guests like someone that you cite in your article, Alex Blanchett, have pointed out to us, these uh, facilities are so dependent upon migrant labor. And then the migrant labor, because them not being, you know, uh, there's them still just being visitors, they're not yet citizens, they don't feel like they have the power to actually say something about what's happening within the facilities. And they fear for their, uh, you know, their safety and uh, being able to stay within the country instead of being deported by complaining about this kind of thing. So it kind of ends the whistleblowers within the employment structure of that facility. But when you point out that, you know, you were saying earlier, maybe what we should do is figure out a way to get rid of this industrial chicken farming. Would ending industrial chicken farming be horrible for the chicken farming sector and the people whose livelihoods depend upon it? Or, or can they simply adapt to a far more safe version of chicken farming? I don't know. I mean, it's. I think. I think that you'd see some resistance from from the people that operate these big farms right now. Um, it's there. I, I spoke briefly in the piece about a, a company called Cooks Venture that I'm kind of digging more into now and, and looking at what alternatives are out there. But um, you know, they're they're based in Arkansas and they're focused on. Um, they're trying to basically make new chicken genetics, make some chickens that are right. Right now, our chickens are basically giant breasts and nothing more, right? Like they don't develop much of an immune system. They don't develop much of a reproductive system. They've just been tweaked so that they make a lot of meat. Um, and that's unhealthy for various reasons, for these pandemic reasons. Um, they also have to be, you know, because their immune systems are so weak, they have to be filled up with antibiotics, which could pose a risk of sort of widespread antibiotic resistance. Um, and so they're saying, you know, let's let's make a chicken that's a chicken and see if we can, they're still operating on an industrial scale, but they've been, um, a lot of producers in Arkansas have kind of quit the business because contract farmers, it's just not a great deal for them. And um, they have been sort of working with some of those people who have left the business and, uh, you know, for much cheaper, they can retrofit barns with more windows. So there's a little bit more natural light um, and start growing chickens again in this different format. And I can't, I have not yet spoken to producers in Arkansas who've, who've made this switch to verify, you know, how appealing it is. But um, there are people exploring these other options that I think, uh, would be less good for powerful corporate interests, the four big chicken companies that own so much of the market, but but probably would be better than um, our current system of, uh, it's called contract growing, where people are basically like competing in a race at the bottom against one another because they're beholden to these big companies. See, that's something we haven't talked about on the show before. That's really fascinating. You write, this bizarre ecosystem, a barn full of genetically identical birds, is, it turns out, a hothouse for viruses. Typically, their parasitic nature imposes a limit on virility. 
kill too many hosts and you'll have no one left to infect. A million or more birds packed together, though, means there's no dead end, just more and more bird bodies for the virus to invade. Even without reassortment, then, these uh, farms produce super flus. In a 2018 study published in Frontiers in Veterinary Science, a team of researchers found that since 1959, when influenza was first identified in birds, commercial flocks in high-income countries have been the site of more than three dozen viral conversions, wherein fairly mild forms of bird flu have morphed into HPAI, again, highly pathogenic avian influenza. So are high-income nations then the dirty nations that create the environment for diseases to emerge and be distributed widely despite the notion by those in high-income nations like here in the United States that viruses are spread from livestock kept in dirty conditions in low-income countries? Is, Is industrialization of agriculture is introducing industrial technology the cause of flu and chicken, not low-tech pre-industrial, if you will, practices? I would say so, yes. I mean, I think it's it's easy to miss this because despite those three dozen sort of HPI, HPAI emergences in, in um, high-income countries, the disease has appeared more in low-income countries. But I think the thing that, that you need to pay attention in those low-income countries is that it's it's the way those countries have changed and it's the fact that they also all that emergence happened with industrial agriculture entering those countries and so yeah if you kind of tear up a wetland that is filled with birds and then you put a big industrial chicken farm next to that and then next to that you have some people that are living essentially in slums but used to live in rural villages and so they brought their chickens with them and you have all these things side by side that to me is is the scary scenario and is part of why um, we see we've we've seen repeated outbreaks coming from Hong Kong and China. Um, it's sort of I mean, Rob Wallace, who's been on the show before, was huge in helping me think about this and understand this. But but um, all of that is also driven by a, a model, an economic model, capitalism, and an agricultural model that was developed first in the U.S. and then eventually was exported to China. And Rob's got a new book coming out in February. I was just speaking with him the other day, and it looks like he's going to be on the show in the next couple of months before his book is released. You write, these flus, along with other diseases, have prompted the birth of a strange new phrase, biosecurity. Farms beca- became the sorts of places where workers need to wear overalls and boot covers and submit to foot baths, if not full showers, when entering, where vehicles need to be disinfected at the gate. It's a vision of the farm as a sealed world entirely separate from nature. Our relationship with food and nature can already be seen as, I don't know, estranged, I guess. Earlier on this week's show, when speaking with uh, geographer Matt Huber about his book, Climate Change as Class War, he pointed out how alienated the working class now is from nature and production and extraction when it comes to the greenhouse gas emitting fossil fuel industry. Does the lack of connection to nature lead to ideas like industrial chicken farming? As our disconnect with nature grows, does our disconnect with our food how it's made, and whether that process is safe or not also grow. Yeah, I, I tend to think so. That, that This is really what drew me to this piece. Again, I, I, I'm always interested in this idea of nature. And I was as I was trying to think about COVID myself and what it meant that we were sort of had to separate ourselves from each other and looking at these supposed bushmeat outbreaks. It was like, it, it just can't be, I don't know, it, it, this this idea is at the heart of so much. Um, and yeah, we, you know, only a couple of generations ago, uh, basically there'd be chickens all over the country on every farm and people were quite familiar with how they were 
how they became the food on your plate. And these days, you know, I myself have spent most of my life just going to the store and picking up a shrink wrap little packet and yeah, didn't have to think much about it. And and that means as sort of agriculture has, has disappeared as a key part of our society, it it has allowed these things like ag laws and CAFOs to to exist um, and for us not to notice much because we're all pretty happy, uh, you know, spending less of our paycheck feeding ourselves um, and, and not knowing where, having to know where it comes from. I'm going to make a horrible pun and I want everybody to apologize to, <laughs> I want to apologize to everybody before I even make it. So I have a chicken or egg question for you. Does our lack of connectivity with nature lead to an agricultural system that is in turn disconnected from what is natural? Or is it industrial agriculture disconnecting us from that nature as a a business model? Is it our fault? Is is this uh, industrial agriculture, is it a reflection of who we are? Or is industrial agriculture something that is imposed upon us and changes our relationship with nature? I mean, I, I really think it could be both. Um, you know, it's uh, I, I throughout this conversation, it's probably made clear. I I struggle to pin blame often, but I'm interested in sort of just like looking at the structures that exist and saying seeing what they do and how they operate. And you know, it can't be denied that a lot of people were eager to leave agriculture, um, and that not a whole lot of people are eager to move back. And so, you know, Rob Wallace talks a lot about agroecology as the solution, kind of reintegrating the our food. With natural systems, I think there's a lot of promise on that. It's something I, I, I'm always reading and, and thinking about. I know one of the criticisms of that movement is, well, who's gonna who's gonna do the work? Um, and that is a fair question in the U.S. I, I don't think right now. I mean, I think there are a lot of people that would like to get in farming and can't because the economic structures make it really hard to to thrive as sort of a small individual farmer. Um, But it is, you know, if we're going to reform our food system, this is a question we have to answer because at this point, the culture we've developed is so disconnected from nature, from farming, from our food sources. And um, yeah, I, I think some of it will is romantic and could be appealing to people. And, you know, I, I've had chickens in the past. It, it has its pleasures and it has its dirtiness. Um, I think people, if we, if we reconnected, people will start to come back, but um, there is a reason why we've sort of left peasant lives behind. They're not always appealing. No, they're not always appealing. You write this uh, regime exists uh, beyond chickens. Alex Blanchett, again, a past guest on our show, an anthropologist at Tufts University, studies the U.S. pork industry, and you can find our interview with uh, Alex by searching on his last name, Blanchett, when we talked with him about his book, Porkopolis. His research has included field work inside production facilities in the midst of an outbreak of the alarmingly named porcine epidemic diarrhea virus, which swept across the country in 2013, killing 10% of the nation's pigs. Blanchett noticed companies going to extraordinary lengths to maintaining biosecurity management, examined pay stubs to make sure that if various employees lived together, they all worked in the same facility. That way human contact could not provide the virus a mechanism to spread across the farm. A manager who supervised the kill floor knew he was not supposed to get beers after work with a manager overseeing the rearing facility. Blanchett told me it was only recently that he acquired the language to describe what was happening within the company. This was a form of social distancing on a pig farm. He said everyday life is kind of like a casual pandemic. We're getting our food from a place where the workers act as if every day is like a casual pandemic or epidemic, sorry. 
or pandemic. How unsafe is industrial pig or chicken farming to the workers? Workers, mind you, who are often low-paid, non-citizens with few proje- few protections and fewer benefits, but you know they still pay Social Security despite not qualifying, as well as paying taxes. How dangerous and bad are chicken, pork, and uh, industrial farm jobs? How bad are they? And I guess my bigger question is, do you think that reflects in the process of the CAFO, in the actual production process? Are these jobs horrible, and then those jobs are reflected in this whole centralized uh, CAFO process? Yeah, they seem pretty horrible to me. And again, for this piece, I, I didn't speak. Uh, besides Alex, who who has worked in those in that, those conditions, didn't get to speak directly with people working on these. But there was some great reporting during the pandemic. Um, a friend and colleague of mine, Leah Douglas, did a lot of coverage of COVID outbreaks on these places. So these were considered essential facilities where people are just squeezed together. Um, and so that that's one virus that they're passing. Um, I think you know a lot. Again, a lot of these each of these individual animal epidemics don't necessarily easily transfer to humans because they haven't adapted that yet. Um, it is telling though that this year for the first time, there was maybe a, a human infection with bird flu. I mean, it, it was a positive test. They, the officials are sort of like, well, this just could have been a particle of virus that kind of was floating around on this guy's nose and he hadn't contracted it yet, but, but who he was, he was a prisoner in Colorado on a work release program cleaning up, uh, chickens that had been euthanized. It's, and to me, it's just this, uh, what an ugly mashup of, of the different down, like dark sides of our economy of prison labor, prison labor and chicken depopulation. Um, and yeah, it's just an example of if you're, you know, in a barn with 50,000 birds. Um, yeah, it's not, doesn't seem particularly clean and pleasant to me. It does not. Uh, when I was uh, still living in Detroit, a lot of my friends worked in uh, slaughterhouses, pork slaughterhouses, or no, beef. It would be uh, slaughterhouses, and uh, just going down there and visiting my friends at the workplace was pretty brutal. You write other uh, infamous viruses like Ebola and, yes, yes SARS-CoV-2 arrive not on farms, but from wildlife. Rob Wallace makes a compelling case, nevertheless, that the root cause is really the same. The global expansion of an agricultural system that was pioneered in the United States and seems to consider any form of ecological destruction justified if it leads to cheaper food and greater profit. So... Is the trade-off worth it? Can we only feed the world if the food is cheap? And the only way that can happen is if growing and distributing food is a profitable industry. Are viruses the price we pay for an agricultural system that fulfills society's needs? Um, it's one of the prices we pay for the agricultural system we have, and others are what we talk about, know, right? These horrid labor conditions. I mean, I speak in the piece of about this uh, these new farm, p- new pig farms in China, thirteen story tall concrete buildings that you basically have to spend two days in quarantine before you enter. And um, that that when I hear people in the U.S. talking about biosecurity, I'm like, well, because of these viruses, this is this is our future if if we continue down this road. I'm I don't think it's what we. I mean, the argument for it is cheap food, and I, a lot of people in America want cheap food. I understand that. I, it seems like a little bit of a specious argument to me. If, if you are concerned, uh, you know, if policymakers are concerned about ensuring that low-income Americans get to eat chicken or beef or pork, I think uh, we can, you know, make other programs that can help them afford chicken and beef and pork if they become more expensive. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I think, you know, this is one of many pieces I've written that has shifted my food habits. I'm not a vegetarian. I, I, like eating meat. I like a lot of food traditions, but uh, I think 
it's becoming a smaller and smaller role in my diet, which is how it has traditionally been in, in most diets, except for sort of the most lavish royalty. And, and I don't think we're going to be able to live in a world where every human being lives to the standard of a, an old British king, basically. So, You mentioned this, these kind of huge pig facilities that they have in uh, China. And you're right, don't worry about them, about the uh, people who work in the quarantine facilities. According to a, a report in The Guardian, the facilities include tennis courts, so the workers don't get cabin fever. The idea, in essence, is to create a separate pig world completely severed from the rest of nature. To me, it sounds less like a farm than a prison filled with inmates, both porcine and human. So is pig world, is that what's best for food safety? Or is that what's best for food safety if you're going to maintain industrial chicken and pork farming? It's definitely the latter. I mean, the scary thing that I, that we're facing now is um, we're running out of solutions because of everything we've done. And so I should like... I was reporting this piece sort of at this, uh, when it seemed like this bird flu epidemic was waning, but, uh, you know, the numbers this month in September, it's, it's returned to Nebraska as many birds have been killed this month as, as were killed in some months in the spring. And so it's basically something that never went away. And, and honestly, it's looking like now it might not go away. It's so endemic in wild birds that every migration season, you're going to see this spike on farms. And so there is a real question of, what do we do? You know, small backyard farms, things like that. Those birds will be exposed, and so I, I understand the argument for these giant prisons, basically. But it just does not. That's that makes me really sad. That's you're right. That that sort of reifies this sense of you know humans have to be completely sp split off from nature. That's not the world I want to live in, and so um, I hope that we can find a better way. But is that the only world that can successfully? I, I just touched on this a little bit. But is this the only way that we can? feed the world. You know, a, a lot of people think that the idea of going back to small farms, as you were saying earlier, is romantic, and it's not necessarily practical if we want to feed everybody. Is this just simply the only way that we can feed the world is through industrial agriculture? Because we just have so many people on this planet. I know there's a lot of issues in that question, but... Yeah. I mean, it's a question that I'm always wrestling with. I don't have an answer to it yet. I, I mean, it's clear to me that the system we have now is not the way to feed the world. So I live... In, the, in New Orleans, I've spent a lot of time going up and down the Mississippi River, which is these huge, huge swaths of industrial cropland. And, you know, I've seen soybeans drive, like for a thousand miles of driving along the, the Mississippi and Missouri River. And those soybeans aren't eaten by human beings. They're eaten by cows. They're turned into fuel. They're turned into oil. Um, and so if, if we really cared about feeding the world, there is a lot we could do and change right now. On the flip side, with population growing, um, I mean, I... I I want to believe in a world where we can all be working off small farms, and I think that needs to happen more. I just haven't wrapped my head around yet about you know what it would take to get there or what all other changes you know it would it would require a lot of cultural changes, and we need to start thinking about how to make those changes um, because yeah, what we've got right now is scary and dangerous in a lot of ways. Obviously, the animal welfare that is being practiced and experienced within these facilities is absolutely horrible. Uh, so, yeah, of course, the, these CAFOs, this industrial agricultural chicken farming, uh, that they could definitely improve when it comes to animal uh, welfare. But is animal welfare anathema to industrial agricultural chicken farming? Is, is it necessary to be brutal to these animals if you're going to have industrial agriculture chicken farming? Is it dependent upon that brutality to keep prices low? 
Essentially, yeah. I mean, I, I think so. I was talking about this uh, with a friend on for a podcast that I have my own about these ideas of nature. Um, Wyatt Williams, who's written a, a great book about eating meat and killing, and he's just sort of was thinking about the the, the language that producers use about sort of mortality rates and things like that, and and you know the to to farm you're going to see chickens die in other ways if you um move away from this industrial facility he he had been reporting on a farm where they were basically being picked off by eagles um but that doesn't seem you're right like being picked off by an eagle seems to me like a better death than uh a better life than being squeezed in, into this facility and um and then eventually shipped to slaughter and so I think, yeah, people talk about the industry itself talks about welfare and death rates and saying like, oh, of course, we want to do everything we can to keep these chickens alive. But ultimately, that's just the profit motive. Um, and so, yeah, I think welfare looks much better on a, in a different kind of farming system than what we have here. You mentioned another problem that the farmer Lance had observed manure being loaded onto trucks at one of the Gallus owned barns near his house within the control area. Another act that could have required, should have uh, required permits. Lance had notified the county while the other farmer, Sam Berlin, had reached out to state and federal officials. It made Lance wonder how much more could happen at these farms beyond the notice of the people who are supposed to be in charge. Is the problem simply a lack of resources to fund enforcement of these public health rules? I doubt that. Um, you know, a lot of people I talk to, these uh communities in the rural Midwest in particular, um, you know, a lot of the money is wrapped up in industrial agriculture, which means a lot of the power is wrapped up in industrial agriculture. And these, um, some of these state agencies are, you know, um, nominally supposed to be enforcing people with whom they have really close tight relationships. And it's the same thing down here in Louisiana, where I live with petrochemical um, industries are supposed to be regulated by our Department of Environmental Quality, um, but a lot of times the department is sort of looking the other way at things. And so, yeah, I think that if if people took seriously these issues, if agencies took seriously these issues, uh, we would be seeing different responses to outbreaks like what happened in Butler County. And you write that the entire quarantine that happened in Butler County following the outbreak seems so slipshod, really. Uh, Lance and Barlene both told me that no agency ever reached out to signal that their homes lay near an outbreak of this flu. They saw ducks and geese swimming in pools of rainwater next to piles of rendered chicken carcasses. Workers discarded two hazmat suits in a roadside ditch, ditch near Lance's house, Lance said he'd asked the county sheriff to remove them, but when I visited four months after the outbreak, the suits were still there, dusty and dried out by the sun. Does law enforcement simply not care? And if not, in your opinion, why not? In this case, I, I, I wish I had, I, I don't want to throw this sheriff under the bus. I think the sheriff told Greg that he intended to contact the other agencies, which who would have sort of jurisdiction over this issue. Um, and I believe he did that, but those agencies did not do anything. Um, when I spoke to the Nebraska Department of Agriculture, I think they signaled, oh, we don't know about that. Um, and so, yeah, again, it's just this uh, between money, power, the, the distance of these agencies, the smallness of these communities. Um, yeah, there's, there's not a whole lot of eagerness to uh, buy the people in power to, to change things right now. One last question for you, Boyce. We have been speaking with award-winning freelance writer Boyce Upholt, who wrote the New Republic article, Will the Next Pandemic Start with Chickens? You can follow Boyce on Twitter 
at Boyce Upholt. That's B-O-Y-C-E Upholt. He is currently working on a new book about the Mississippi River, a history of what's been done to it, and travelogue showing the results. You can find out more about Boyce at his website, boyceupholt.com. Before I ask you our final question, and as it is for all of our guests, the final question is the question from hell, the question we hate to ask you, you may hate to answer. Our audience is going to hate your response. First, Boyce, let's plug your podcast. What's the name of your podcast and how can people find it? It's called Rewild, R-E with a colon. Um, and again, because it's about what is this idea of wild and wilderness. Uh, and you can find that. Uh, basically, if you just search for that in any podcast app, you should be able to find it. So I'm sure that in your research for your book on the Mississippi River, uh, you've read Tales of the Mississippi by Mark Twain? I have a couple times, yeah. I love that book. I, that's one of my favorite Mark Twain books. And there's a really great, if I can find it, I will send it to you. There's a really great essay from the mid-90s, late-90s by Barry Lopez about the changing form of the Mississippi River. and Being able to, he makes uh, references to it uh, from Mark Twain's writing, being able to read the river and how the river has changed from one position to another and how different it is from uh, the tales of the Mississippi. So if I can find that uh, essay, I will send that to you as well, boys. I so would, I, I would love that because I love Barry Lopez, and I don't think – I know that the Twain passage he's speaking of, but I don't know that I've encountered that essay. So. Yeah, it's really interesting. All right, so here's our question from hell for you, boys. As it turned out, the Butler County Fair overlapped with my visit to the area. On my last morning in the county, I decided to stop by, hoping to chat with a few backyard uh, poultry farmers about how they'd fared through the outbreak. But when I arrived, the beef weigh-in was underway, so the open-air poultry farm was mostly empty, just a few children wandering from pen to pen and admiring the menagerie. I saw hefty white broilers and exotic pigeons, geese and ducks, along with one turkey so perfectly formed that he appeared to have been lifted from the pages of a children's Thanksgiving book. It was a slice of wholesome Americana, and after my several days of contemplating the perils of modern capitalism, it should have provided a bit of cheer. Now, however, I could only see these birds as a viral breeding ground, the potential beginnings of the next mixed-up superflu. Was this barn the continuation of a timeless tradition, or one more menace? It's too soon to know. The answer will depend on the choices we make, what kind of public health system we build, which force we allow to be mowed down, and in no small part, how we decide to feed ourselves. Boyce, do you think climate change and pandemics will force us to change the way we feed ourselves? Absolutely. Um, I'm scared that we're going to take too long to do it because of sort of these structures of power and this institutional resistance that we've been talking about. But um, you know, traveling the Mississippi River, I've already seen farmers that are telling me, uh, you know, growing seasons are changing, economics are changing. Um, we're yeah, these changes are already happening. But I hope that more people pay attention to to the way the way the we raise our food, how that contributes to all these processes, and, and starts you know making better individual choices, but pushing to uh, change the entire structure for the better. Boyce, thank you so much for being on our show today. Check out Boyce's podcast re wild. Thank you so much for being on the show and enjoy your upcoming weekend. Thanks so much, Chuck. Take care. Live from land stolen from the Potawatomi people, this is hell. It's always weird when a guest says, uh, you know, stuff like, oh, you know, Rob Wallace, who's been on your show many times. And all of a sudden I realize that the person I'm talking to has actually heard the show before. They're listening. It freaks me out every time because I figure, should I say this is hell before we put them on the air? Maybe they won't want to come on the show. And then they listen in. Nobody heard.
cares? If what you just heard from Boyce Uphold on our scary future living with and possibly dying from bird flu, if that was in some way enlightening to you or made you actually realize that, yes, this is hell, show your support by becoming a subscriber to our weekly bonus Patreon podcast, which streams live on Thursday at 10 a.m. Chicago time this week. And this podcast shortly after at patreon.com slash this is hell, or you can show your support for completely listener-supported This Is Hell by visiting thisishell.com and clicking on support. Dan, please remind us, what is this week's question from hell? And share with us the rest of our listeners' answers. Remember, this week's question from hell is, what important personal item did you lose at the This Is Hell annual listener appreciation party this weekend? Do you have an answer of your own? No, I I bring everything. I had my wits about me, (laughs) which put me in the minority. (laughs) It did put you in the the very small minority. All right. Did you see any very large pupils while you were there? I wasn't wasn't looking for them, but I think maybe the table behind me could have supplied them. Yeah, yeah. There were a lot of people who looked like anime characters. Cool, yeah, definitely. (laughs) Uh, Jamie K. over at Twitter says, My prosthetic hand. Can someone give me a hand? Oh, Hi-oh. Jesus. Holy crap, uh, Jamie. All the way from Canada. Good <laughs> Lord. Just to put that kind of yeah, stuff exactly. on our feet. Ben K says, tab left open, card behind the bar. At the very next day, I got it from Clay, and everything was copacetic. <laughs> yeah, I bet. After, especially the night before with <laughs> anime-like eyes. Go ahead. <laughs> Hypocrite Reader uh, says, uh, an exquisite borrowed necklace <laughs> whose replacement I pay off after a decade of backbreaking labor before learning that the original was a mere piece of costume jewelry. <laughs> All right. I like the colors he's painting with. Yeah. I'm not sure about the reference. That's yeah. it for Twitter. We had one more come in at Facebook from Bree P, and they said, my custom made This Is Hell flask and bong. <laughs> or water pipe, if you prefer. Uh, water pipe, if you prefer. I like that. Uh, so I liked, uh, you know, I, I did like Ben Kay's uh, mention of leaving his card behind the bar. Uh, Jamie, really? Your prosthetic hand? Can someone give me a hand? That just, I, I don't know what to say about that. Uh, I also like Bree saying, my customer made This Is Hell f- uh, flask and bong. We've been trying to get a This Is Hell bong in our merchandise area, and that's just something we have to do. The problem is, uh, you don't want a plastic bong, you want a glass one, and guess what? It's very difficult to deliver a glass bong in one piece. I like Mark A saying, I lost my two-year-long COVID fear of sharing a J with strangers. Krimsky saying, I lost all self-respect, and there was not a lot of it. Did you look behind the bar? Neil C., who joined us at the party all the way from Brooklyn, New York, saying that he lost a kidney stone, got a week ago, felt good enough to come to Chicago with heavy-duty pain meds, and felt great at the party. He must have peed it out with the beer. Uh, Tom saying that uh, he lost his status as a loser. Chris saying that he lost his dignity. Warren saying he lost his marbles. Pete saying he lost his mind. Uh, Wojciech saying that he lost his sobriety. And Essel saying that he lost his virginity. But that makes this week's winner... One that we have not mentioned yet. We got it as a message via Twitter, and I had no idea who this person was. I was hoping it was somebody who had been to the party and not just somebody who made up this story. Michael C., who writes what he lost, is his self, self-esteem at a pool table below a radio show in a bar. So congratulations, Michael C. You are the winner of this week's question from hell for saying that you lost your self-esteem at a pool table below a radio show because that is 
the best free Northside pool table here in the city. And there are a lot of really good players who play here at Carrie's Lounge for com- completely for free. So losing your self-esteem at a pool table below a radio show is not that unpredictable. Congratulations, Michael C. Just tell us what piece of This Is Hell swag you want from what is available at thisishell.com when you click on support. And we'll get it to you in the mail post-haste. So I read that e- or that message on Twitter maybe on Monday, I think it was, sun- either Sunday night or Monday morning. And I had no idea who Michael C. was. And then I chose it as this should be this week's winner because I love the idea of somebody losing their self-esteem at the pool table. And I found out that that is Michael C. of Michael and Chris, who came all the way in from Sacramento, California. California. And I read an email from them earlier this week on the air. So, Michael, thank you very much for uh, being at the party. Thank you very much for giving us the winning answer to this week's question from hell. And uh, look for a piece of our merchandise to you in the mail. My answer to this week's question from hell, what important personal item did you lose at this is hell annual listener appreciation party this weekend? I lost my anxiety over hosting a This Is Hell anniversary and listener appreciation party. We've done several of these now dating back to at least 2014, and every time I would get stage fright and be so concerned about everyone having a good time that I could never just relax and enjoy the party and the people. But right before it started, my non-wife, my uncommon-law wife, my unwife told me that it's supposed to be, the party's supposed to be about having fun. And while walking over here, I just kind of said, screw it and stopped worrying of course i forgot to thank anyone any people who work on this is hell the bartenders pete who owns carrie's lounge my girlfriend and her sister who ran the raffle on the merch table i even forgot to tell everyone that the framed kennedy prints were for sale so i lost my anxiety about hosting and in doing so i'm pretty certain I became a terrible host. Thanks to everyone who sent in an answer to this week's question from hell. Keeping it real, real deep in debt since 1996, this is hell. And if you want to help us climb out of that debt, please subscribe to our weekly Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash this is hell. On last week's Patreon, it it was another edition of This Week in Hell, our semi-regular review of that week's shows where I go through each guest, share with you what I got out of that conversation that I did not mention on the show, maybe even reveal a question I did not get a chance to ask but wish I did. But last week, listeners apparently liked when I was discussing our conversation with Dorothy Roberts and her book Torn Apart about the family policing system and children, especially black children living in poverty, being torn from their families and placed in foster care against their and their family's wishes. Dorothy pointed out how that that is often the result of police and caseworkers mistaking poverty for child abuse, which led me to say on Patreon last week that capitalism is child abuse. And when I mentioned how we did an interview with James Wilt last week on his book, Drinking Up the Revolution, about big alcohol and a socialist response to harm reduction, I pointed out that it was hypocritical of us to have a talk on the problems with big alcohol right before we were about to host a, an anniversary and listener appreciation party at a bar, which got me to thinking under capitalism, it is increasingly difficult to live up to our moral standards. In other words, capitalism forces us to be hypocrites in order to survive. This week, I'll be following up on what I've been learning on the show and concluding that not only is capitalism the virus, not only is it a disease, It is a pandemic, and we need to protect ourselves against it like we protect ourselves against any pathogen. This week on Patreon, capitalism is the pandemic. We are 
also sharing an interview that was my answer to last week's question from hell for our listening audience. Last week, the question from hell was, in the 26-year history of this program, which moment, topic, or guest made you mutter, this is hell? My answer was, the most hellish show we ever did was back in December of 1999 when we were covering the battle for Seattle at the WTO ministerial protest. We had many live conversations with people who were in Seattle at that moment, so many that we expanded that week's show on WNUR to five and a half straight hours of commercial live free radio. Uh, commercial-free live radio. By the time we got to the final guest, who was the sixth or seventh guest of the morning, I was struggling to continue to stay awake. In fact, during a conversation with the writer Paul Roberts, who had the front-page article in that month's uh, issue of Harper's titled The Sweet Hereafter, Our Craving for Sugar Starves the Everglades and Fattens Politicians, I was so exhausted that I actually fell asleep. So we are going to be sharing an interview where I fell asleep during the interview And you know what? You'll never be able to tell where I fell asleep because I never missed a beat. And when I suddenly woke up and he was finishing a question, I looked at my notes and just read what was ever in front of me. All that said, it is a fascinating Harper's article by Paul Roberts. And I did learn a lot about the political power of big sugar in Florida. If you do become a subscriber to This Is Hell on Patreon, not only do you get a special code word giving you a discount on all of our merchandise that you can find it right now at thisishell.com when you click on support, but you also get access to over 200 past Patreon podcasts with each and every one featuring a monologue by me and a classic interview that currently are not available anywhere else online, but you only can hear that by subscribing at patreon.com slash thisishell. Dan, who are our guests scheduled to be on the show next week? We'll have on Andrea Vetter, co-author of The Future is to Growth, A Guide to a World Beyond Capitalism, which she wrote along with Matthias Schmelzer and past This Is Hell guest Aaron Van Sintgen. Andrea is a transformation researcher, activist, and journalist using degrowth, commons, and critical ecofeminism as tools. And then nobody booked for yet for Tuesday, but who do we have for Wednesday's show? Wednesday, we'll be speaking with Azada Shashahani and Fatima Ahmad about their article at The Progressive, The Surveillance State Can't Solve White Supremacy. After the January 6th attack, federal surveillance programs expanded to counter white supremacist violence have made black and brown communities their main target. Azada is legal and advocacy director with Project South and a past president of the National Lawyers Guild. Fatima is executive director of Muslim Justice League. Thanks to this week's producers, Lindsey Gorey, Dan Hill, and Sebastian Jerry. And as always, thanks to Alexander, or Sebastian Vupper. Sorry, Sebastian Vupper. I'm looking at two things here and starting to get dyslexia. Uh, and also thanks to uh, Alexander Jerry, Ronaldo Magaldi, and Theron Humiston. And we look forward to having Jeff Dorchin back on the show next week for another Moment of Truth. Talk to you tomorrow on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell. There's only one way to get over all of the problems that we've introduced to you on this week's show. That's by sitting down in the lotus position, turning your palms towards the sky, focusing on that burning white dot in the middle of your forehead, and saying the simple words, everybody's stupid. My demon is on my butt. (laughs) My demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>